what we're going to try and cover today. Where are we in terms of this discussion? How did we get here? The abandonment of coverture and the historic definition of marriage, uh, same-sex marriage is a tipping point, and what should we do? So let's just dive right in. Where are we? Um, the recent ruling um, of the case of same-sex marriage occurred on June 26, 2015, and uh, the court decided in a 5-4 to four decision that the 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex and to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state. So the law of the land in America, they saw great benefit in not being um, ununited in their approach to this issue. And so they did not let states go their own way in this ruling. And they said, we want to all do the same thing. Um, and of course, uh, people were, <clears throat> some were very upset with this because <clears throat> it was taken out of the legislative process and was decided by nine attorneys. And there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion of that. More recently then, uh, this month, there's another bill that's being suggested in the Senate following up that Supreme Court decision, the Equality Act, that will expand that ruling that was made by the Supreme Court to various areas, areas of business and employment, education. And it's getting great traction uh, because um, many people are beginning to get behind that in uh, actually one side of the house, if you will, and then the other side as well. So that's where we are today, <clears throat> a vast change of a definition that really has been there for millennia, and then agitation to take that definition, that redefinition, and expand it into every area of society. <clears throat> so how did we get here? <coughs> How do we get here? Well, as you already remember, um, this debate has gone on for some time, and there was a rapid change that began around 2007 and 8. you can see there, and the opinion of the country <coughs> basically flipped. Uh, as you, you might say that the, the final movements were rapid once, and there was a flipping of the um, understanding of marriage, the Defense of Marriage Act that was passed back during the Clinton administration was um, you know, jettisoned by this recent Supreme Court ruling. Um, it was interesting to read and listen to all the oral arguments leading up to the decision. How many of you were able to listen to those or read those? Okay. One person. All right, good. I'm not saying it was something you had to do, <laughs> but it certainly was interesting, and um, as I read through those, um, I went through them more in depth, like I said in those other presentations, but I want to kind of cut to the chase today. Uh, arguing for the same-sex marriage, Mary Bonotto of 
gay and lesbian advocates who's been uh, a defender of many of these cases, um, got into a dialogue with the, the Chief Justice Roberts. And as they began discussing and talking about the definition of marriage, I just will remind you of some of the things that the Supreme Court justices said in their uh, oral arguments. Every definition that I looked up prior to about a dozen years ago defined marriage as unity between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia added, I don't know of any society prior to the Netherlands in 2001 that permitted same-sex marriage. Even during oral arguments, Justice Kennedy, who would ultimately write in favor of same-sex marriage, had the question, this definition has been with us for millennia, and it's, it's a very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better, uh, which is exactly what they did. But at that point, he was questioning that. And then Justice uh, Samuel Alito, well, how do you account for the fact that as far as I'm aware, until the 20th, end of the 20th century, there never was a nation or a culture that recognized marriage between two people of the same sex? How can we infer from that that those nations and those cultures all thought that there was some rational, practical purpose for defining marriage in that way? Or is it your argument that they were all operating independently based solely on irrational stereotypes and prejudice? And this was really the line of reasoning for those that were on the court that were against same-sex marriage. And that was that there was a millennia of precedent and there must be a good reason for that. <clears throat> in a response to that question, and then in the response that Justice Kennedy wrote, the majority uh, opinion for the recent ruling, um, <clears throat> kind of followed the same kind of reasoning, it was this. And again, those just coming in, we're talking about how did we get where we are in this particular case. Your Honor, my position is that times can blind, and if you think about the example of, same, of sex discrimination, and what it, again, I assume it was protected by the 14th Amendment, but it took over 100 years for this court to recognize that a sex classification contravened was in conflict with the Constitution. And then came, and then she cited these cases, which we'll look at briefly, Craig versus Bowen, Bowers versus Hartwick, Romer versus Evans, Lawrence versus Texas, and the United States versus Windsor. So let's just look at those briefly because when we enter into discussing what the court is trying to think, we have to look at how they got there. Um, <laughs> Craig versus Bowen was a case about alcohol. Al Oklahoma passed a statute pro prohibiting the sale of non-intoxicating 3.2% beer to males under the age of 21, but allowed females over the age of 18 to purchase it. So the statute was challenged as a 14th Amendment equal protection violation by a man who was over 18 uh, but under 21 and an Oklahoma vendor of, of alcohol. So they, and that was the first kind of thing, like can you treat the genders different concerning alcohol? The court held that the gender classifications made by the Oklahoma statute were unconstitutional. So that was the first kind of discussion about, you know, did they have a difference based on gender for alcohol? Bowers versus Hartwick in 1986, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld a 5-4 to four, and a 5-4 to four ruling the constitutionality of a Georgia, 
Georgia's sodomy law criminalizing oral and anal sex in private between consenting adults when applied to homosexuals. And the majority opinion that was written by Byron Wright was that it was a fundamental right that the Constitution did not confer a fundamental right to engage in homosexual sodomy. Concurring with that, Justice uh, Warren Burger cited the ancient roots of prohibitions against the homosexual sex, quoting William Blackstone, which is an English jurist in the late 1700s, description of homosexual sex as an infamous crime against nature worse than rape and a crime not fitted to be named, Berger concluded in his uh, concurring opinion that to hold that the act of homosexual sodomy is some way protected as a fundamental right would be to cast aside millennia of moral teaching. And so this 1986, not so long ago, uh, for those of us who are a little bit older, the, the opinion was that, you know, moral teaching could be appealed to. Fast forward to 1996, Romer v. Evans, it was the Supreme, first Supreme Court case to address gay rights since that case we just mentioned. And the court decided in a 6-3 decision that a state constitutional amendment in Colorado preventing protected status based upon homosexuality and bisexuality did not satisfy the Equal Protection Clause. But that was all going to change in the next case in Lawrence versus Texas. In a landmark decision, 6-3 ruling, the court struck down the sodomy law in Texas and by extension invalidated sodomy laws in 13 other states making same-sex activity, sexual activity, legal in every U.S. state and territory. The court overruled its previous ruling on the same issue that we had just cited, Bowers versus Hartwick, when it upheld a challenge Georgia statute and did not find a constitutional protection of sexual privacy. In the majority opinion, and this was the same person that penned the majority opinion of the last uh, same-sex uh, 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 you know, marriage act that we, we just had, in, that we mentioned at the beginning, Justice Kennedy, Kennedy said, the court upheld that homosexuals had protected liberty interests to engage in private sexual activity, that homosexual moral and sexual choices, choices were entitled to constitutional protection, and that moral disapproval did not provide a legitimate justification for Texas law criminalizing sodomy. Can you see the shift? In other words, something outside the law, as defined by the justices, does not allow you to uh, have, um, you know, be the basis of um, moral disapproval. Justice, wrote, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote in his um, majority opinion, the petitioners, Lawrence and Garner, are entitled to respect for their private lives. The state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. Kennedy reviewed the assumption the court made in Bowers using the words of Justice Berger's concurring opinion in the case that condemnation of homosexual practices is firmly rooted in Judeo-Christian moral and ethical standards. So make no mistake, when the court said you no longer have moral standards guide you, it was specifically speaking about Judeo-Christian moral guidance. Another way of saying the Bible no longer can guide in these areas. It was wrong that we let it guide before. So now fast forward to Windsor, 2013, 
a landmark civil rights case in which the United States Supreme Court held that restricting U.S. federal interpretation of marriage and spouse, um, in other words, what does the word marriage and spouse mean, to apply only to heterosexual unions, um, as was cited in the Defense of Marriage Act, was unconstitutional. In other words, marriage and spouse can apply to others rather than a heterosexual couple. That was in Windsor. So now can you see then how the court has been moving and how we got where we are? Can you see that? So it was a detachment from the Judeo-Christian moral ethic, in other words, being guided by the Bible in any way, and then just a reinterpretation without any of that guidance. Um, I don't know if this is appropriate to say, <laughs> but I just say it. Anytime that we, uh, as individuals or families or churches, decide that we're going to kind of go away from the moorings of Scripture, we can, we can get very interesting places very rapidly. I think that should be a lesson to all the groups I mentioned. So, where are we? How do we get here? And now, uh, the abandonment of coverture and the historic definition of marriage. Coverture was a new word to me, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it here. In the dialogue and the oral arguments leading up to the landmark decision, there was a discussion by the justices concerning uh, this particular word, and we'll just go through it and you'll see it. Wouldn't you be asking for this relief if, but would, you wouldn't be asking for this relief, said Justice Ginsburg, if the law of marriage was what it was a millennia ago. I mean, it wasn't possible. Same-sex unions were not, would not have opted into the pattern of marriage which was a relationship, a dominant and subordinate relationship. Yet it was marriage between a man and a woman, but the man decided where the couple would be domiciled, in other words, lived, and it was her obligation to follow him. We have changed, continued Justice Ginsburg, our idea about marriage. There was a change in the institution of marriage to make it egalitarian when it was not egalitarian. And same-sex unions wouldn't, would not fit into what marriage once was. So here in the high court, they said, look, we've changed into an egalitarian model. We're not under a former model. Well, when did that end? Well, according to Justice Ginsburg, it ended as a result of this court's decision in 1982 when Louisiana's head and master rule was struck down and no state was allowed to have such such a marriage anymore. Would that be the choice that a state should be allowed to have to cling to marriage the way it once was? Interesting discussion, what would you say? Um, I guess I was reading something that was not on your screen, sorry about that. Um, Bunato, who was listening, affirmed what she said by saying this, that's correct. I mean, for centuries, we had, and Europe had, this coverture system where a woman's legal identity was absorbed into that of her husband, and men and women had different prescribed legal roles. 
And again, because of equality and changing social circumstances, all of those gender differences in the rights and responsibilities of the married pair have been eliminated. And that, of course, is a system in which committed same-sex couples fit quite well. So in other words, the reasoning of the court was that because coverture had done, been done away with, or the reasoning of Justice Ginsburg and Bonato and the oral arguments, and then ultimately the decision that was reached in June was that coverture uh, was done away with, the relationship between men and women. And of course, as they described it, it was seen as a very negative thing, where there was a dominant and subordinate uh, relationship that was despicable, need to be done away with. So I looked up that word, I said, what does that mean, coverture? I mean, I, I haven't normally used the word in, in my vocabulary until I studied this. Well, it literally just means protecting or covering. And it um, was then given legal legs in, in um, especially in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And let's just review that form of coverture and talk about it briefly. The legal system of marriage in England from 1188 to 1870. That's quite a while. Um, the married woman was covered under the protection and influence of her husband. The wife and the husband were viewed as being one legal entity. Now, I, I don't know, but how many of you have ever been to a wedding? All right? And in that wedding, when people come down front, at least a traditional wedding, you have who comes marching down? The bride does, and who marches with the bride if everything's traditional? The father does, and then what does the minister say? Who gives this woman to be married to this man, right? Now, they might change it a bit. I've heard some very creative things recently at weddings. And then, um, after that, what happens? Father and the mother kiss the bride, and they do what? They hand her over to who? And then you have the vows and whatnot, Right? Well, that was symbolically based on what? It's actually based on the Bible, right? It's in the book of Numbers. There was this idea that the protection of the woman was the responsibility of the man. And if the woman was not covered by her father, the woman should be covered by her husband, who would be the house band. So that's really where they got that. <clears throat> now, I want to make an important clarification that the court didn't bring out, but as I studied the history of coverture, William Blackstone said, the husband is bound to provide his wife with the necessities, the necessaries, or necessities, but it should say, by law, as much as himself. And if she contracts debts for them, he is obliged to pay them. How many of you ladies can say amen to that? <laughs> so, lest we think that it was all just a one-way street, 
oh, you know, the guy was in charge and he was large and in charge. He could tell. That wasn't really what coverture was. And as I read the cases, I tried to go back and read in the, it helped me that I grew up on the King James Bible. <laughs> and I went back and I saw many cases where, you know, they'd go to court and the man had to pay for anything the lady had done. So don't think it was just a one-way street. Coverture is what marriage historically was in English and American, early American tradition. Men controlling all property and income, and men were fully legally responsible for the support of their wives. And we've already seen that there was kind of give and take. So how did this play out in the discussions by the, the justices, this issue of coverture? Here's what Justice Roberts had to say about it. Coverture was not a universal aspect of marriage around the world, and there again, if you look at the basic definition, it's between a man and a wife. It does not always say between a man and a woman in which the woman is subordinate in legal respects. So I'm not sure that it's still again a fair analogy to your situation. So I said, yeah, I know about coverture, and I stipulate that. In other words, I, I know what you're talking about, but... Around the world, there was uh, men and women in relationships where coverture was not even known. Well, this is an interesting discussion, isn't it? Because then ultimately, this is what the New York Times said concerning the, at that time, pending uh, decision. The United States Supreme Court may soon liberate the biblically conservative church from old prejudices that should have long ago been jettisoned, forcing it into rightly bowing to the enlightenments of modernity. So can you see what this is really about? It's not just about marriage, it's about what? It's about biblically conservative churches. How many of you know anybody that belongs to a biblically conservative church? So where are we? How do we get here? The abandonment of coverture and the historic definition of marriage. And now same-sex marriage as a tipping point because now this is the law of the land. <clears throat> First of all, I thought it was interesting. I went back and really looked at several things ever since the coverture laws were jettisoned. One thing I looked at that I thought was interesting was the labor force report of married women from 1890, which would be when my great-grandfather was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, along with H.M.J. Richards, H.M.S.'s dad, way back then. And uh, back then, you know, men and women would work together. Not so much did the ladies work outside the home, but that changed. 1890, 1900, you can see the graph, up until about when? 1990, it began to slow down. And now it's actually diminishing. Women are beginning to go back home. And they're leaving the work workforce, many of them. In fact, it's starting to crush down the other way. I think that's kind of interesting. I just wonder, um, 
I mean, I think there's a case to be made either way, but I'm just wondering how beneficial um, women in the workforce has been for families, for instance. Well, let's look at another graph that I found interesting. Workforce. This graph shows those who are married in 1890 in the purple graph and those uh, who worked outside. So in other words, those who were married, essentially none of the ladies were working outside the home or outside the family business. 1940, that began to change, whereas the single and divorced and widows, of course, they were working. 1940, that began to change. 1970, with um, many of the social revolutionary changes of the 60s and 70s, that began to change even more. 1990, even more. And now it's starting to diminish a bit in 2010. And uh, if you look at the statistics concerning family and children, you see some very troubling trends as that has changed. And this was the counter-argument, actually, that was made and rejected by the high court. Counter-argument was that it was important to encourage children to be bonded to their biological mom and dad. The Solicitor General of Michigan former Solicitor General of Michigan said, if you're changing the meaning of marriage from one where it was based on that biological bond to one in which it's based on an emotional commitment, then adults could think rightly that this relationship is more about adults and not about kids. In other words, the big mantra today is that the most important thing is love, as defined as an emotion, right? Between whoever, whenever. So this was the concern. And when you change the definition of marriage to delink the idea that we're binding children with their biological mom and dad, that has consequences. There are all kinds of societal pressures that are already delinking that reason that the state, again, is for marriage, keeping kids and their biological moms and dads together whenever possible. This was the argument. The state's sole interest in these cases isn't about love. It's about binding children to their biological moms and dads. And that kind of reasoning uh, was what was rejected in the recent Supreme Court decision. It wasn't without going down without a fight, and you may want to see some of the amici briefs that were uh, supplied to the court. In other words, before you make this decision, please read what we had to say. Here's what the American College of Pediatrics said. Children with same-sex parents fare substantially worse, worse. Most measures show at least twice the level of distress than do children with opposite-sex parents on a range of psychological, developmental, and emotional outcomes. The longer social scientists study the question, the more evidence of harm is found. That was dismissed. Well, let's look more closely at what they were saying they were concerned about. They wondered whether or not a same-sex relationship or environment would be safe. On the studies that they cited, and the CDC cites, is that lifetime prevalence of rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner happens in 44% of lesbian 
situations, 61% of bisexual relationships and 35% of heterosexual. You might say not a big difference, but there is a difference. Gay, 26%, bisexual, 37%, and heterosexual, 29%. So there is question of whether or not, even by the CDC, it's a safe environment. Child emotional problems. Uh, this is all from the American College of Pediatrics, what they supplied the court before they made the decision. Child emotional problems, developmental disability and medical treatment for emotional problems by family type. Opposite sex partners, you saw that 7.4% of them needed that, whereas same-sex partners, 17.4% needed it. Developmental disability, 10.2% for opposite sex parents, same-sex parents, 19.3%. Medical treatment for emotional problems, you see a little difference there as well, 10% versus 17%. What about depressive symptoms um, above the average family type? Unmarried of the opposite sex, 56% uh, had that if they were um, together and not married, but if they're married, 47%. Unmarried, same sex, 50%, but if they got married, notice how it jumped. 87.7% of married same sex couples have kids that demonstrate highly depressive states. And someone says, well, wait a minute, that's because of the bullying and that's because of how they're treated in social society. But these statistics hold even in environments where they're not criticized by the social society. Um, and there are some rather massive studies done, for instance, in Scandinavian countries, and, uh, those dep and depression is skyrocketing in those countries and especially in those situations. And it's something that Dr. Nedley and I see a lot of when people come from around the world, especially from those countries, and they're struggling with terrible depression. What about unhappiness? Again, unmarried, yeah, there's some people unhappy, 56.9% in the opposite sex, and 51% even in, when they're married. Unmarried, same sex, 34%. But when they get married, what happens to the happiness? It goes out the window, 94.9% are unhappy. What about a child that's fearful or crying every day or almost every day in the past year by family type? Again, this was all supplied the court before their decision. For the opposite sex, 4.4% of those who were unmarried, once they got married, they stopped crying a little bit, went down to 3.1%. But what about unmarried same sex, 5.4%? But when they got married, they really started crying, 32.4%. Were you physically forced to have sexual intercourse against your will? Percent yes, by those in family type, unmarried, 12.2%, married, 10% in the opposite sex category. But unmarried same sex, it jumped, 23.5%. And once they got married, 70.5%. Something it seems to be happening there. Before you were in sixth grade, had one of your parents or other adult caregivers touched you in a sexual way, forced you to touch him or her in a sexual way, or forced you to have sexual relations? Notice the unmarried opposite sex, 6.8 said it. They were married, it went down 3.5%. There was no data on the unmarried same sex, but when they got married, nearly 40% said yes. 
So this was the evidence, some of it. I don't have time. Like I said, we did four or five presentations covering the data. That was supplied to the court before they made the decision. That was a five to four decision. That is um, upgirding, uh, undergirding same-sex marriage across our, our nation. Marriage College of Pediatrics um, summarizes, over 30 years of research confirms that children fare best when reared by their two biological parents in a, low, in a loving, low-conflict marriage. Children navigate developmental stages more easily, are more solid in their gender identity, perform better academically, have fewer emotional disorders, and become better functioning adults when reared within their natural family. This is in part because biology contributes to parent-child bonding. Look, I have like 10 things that I wish I could go through right now of some of the studies that they cited. Memory improves, academics improves, everything improves when mom and dad are together with the family. But you notice, in a low-conflict, loving relationship. Did you notice that? So, so this has become a tipping point, and back to the uh, pre-decision oral arguments, the uh, solicitor general on behalf of the United States <clears throat> got into a dialogue with Justice Roberts and Alito. Counsel, I'd like to find up on the line of questioning that Justice Scalia started. We have a concession from your friend that clergy will not be required to perform same-sex marriage, but there are going to be harder questions. Would a religious school that has married housing be required to afford such housing to same-sex couples? <clears throat> And then Justice Alito, in Bob Jones, the Bob Jones University, the court held that a college was not entitled to its tax-exempt status if it opposed interracial marriage or interracial dating. So would the same apply to a college or university if it opposed same-sex marriage? And Verlilli's answer, the Solicitor General's answer, made the news, of course. I, I, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing the specifics, but it's certainly going to be an issue. I, I don't deny that. I don't deny that, Justice Alito, it, 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 it's going to be an issue. And that was exactly how he said it. I put all those additional I's and whatnot in there. That was not typos, although I'm guilty of those many times. So he said, yes, it's going to be an issue. Right? And I'm going to show you what happened in one state in a moment um, where same-sex marriage was passed a number of years ago. In Robert's dissent... After the ruling um, this last June, he said this, the majority graciously suggests that religious believers may continue to advocate and teach their views of marriage. The First Amendment guarantees, however, the freedom to exercise religion. Ominously, that is not a word that the majority uses. Um, by the way, if you want some very good reading, read the dissent. Read the whole thing. It's not too long. It's still over 100 pages. Read the whole thing. It's actually fascinating. Well, let's, let's look back a little bit because sometimes the past is the best predictor of the future in these things and see what happened in, for instance, uh, Massachusetts when same-sex marriage 
um, was adopted. This happened back in 2003. And this was the first decision by a U.S. state high court to find that same-sex couples had the right to marry. So what happened in Massachusetts? And perhaps we could um, suggest that similar things may happen nationally. Um, November 2003, Massachusetts Supreme Court rules that same-sex marriage is legal. In December, that was November, then December, public schools had same-sex celebrations and literature handed out to all the students. How many are, are saying, I think I believe again in Adventist education? September 2004, a gay uh, sex talk was taught in middle schools because it's legal now. 2005, elementary school, books came out like this one, Who's in the Family, that did away with gender. 2005, in high school, there was a little black book given to everyone, educating them how to perform various intimate acts. 2006, the second graders were giving the book called King and King. 2007, federal judge said parents have no rights concerning what's taught about homosexuality in the school. Accepting homosexuality is a matter of good citizenship. Do not argue. We will educate your children. Libraries filled with books teaching that gay marriage was a civil rights victory and it began to be taught in all of the history lessons. Mandatory gay days, gay pride parades, were set up to fight tolerance, intolerance. And as a result, many more children are self-identifying as gay. Between 2005 and 2009 in Massachusetts, a 50% increase. Transgenderism is now being promoted, or was started to be promoted. In 2006, a cross-dressing man undergoing a sex change operation was brought to a third grade class in Newton to teach the children that there are now different kinds of families. HIV AIDS diagnosis caused by male homosexual behavior rose by 30% between 2000 and 2009 in that state. And domestic violence education budget had to go up because I showed you that there is great domestic violence more in lesbian homes but also in uh, homosexual homes. People in Massachusetts have been fired for voicing religious objections to same-sex marriage. All businesses must recognize same-sex married couples in all their benefits. And by the way, this is an ASI convention. And if many of you are in business. And you're probably already now encountering how am I going to relate to that. And uh, I could say more about that, but I think probably I won't. The wedding industry must serve the homosexual community or be held liable for discrimination. I just watched, uh, a, uh, looked at a case last night where a couple had a wedding chapel and they said, you have to allow this and if you don't, you're going to you know, be penalized and they were penalized, they had to pay a big fee. They just shut down their business. I got a question for you. What does the Bible say ultimately happened before Jesus comes in Revelation 13. You won't be able to do what? 
How many of you want to get ready for that now? <laughs> Businesses were being tested by homosexuals. They would go into the business and have public displays of, of affection, and they would go right down the street targeting different businesses. Legal profession, people being failed on the bar exam for not answering questions concerning same-sex marriage. Of course, the high court in Canada right now has a case before it with an evangelical school on the west side of Canada um, where their students may not be allowed into law school because they're not being taught that same-sex relationships are okay. Adoption agencies had to be retrained. 40% of adoptions are to homosexual couples, and the Catholic Church, when that was mandated, shut down all their adoption agencies. They said, we will not continue our adoption agencies. Church harassment has now started in Massachusetts, and how many think that might go, go uh, national? For refusing to allow a same-sex couple to enroll a student for a student in their school, for holding seminars promoting traditional marriage, like, for instance, this one, and disruption of services were allowed. In one case I read, there was people standing all around a Focus on the Family seminar, and the police did nothing as they were banging on the windows and attempting to disrupt the uh, seminar. The legalization of same-sex marriage would represent a triumph of an egalitarian-based ethic over a faith-based one, and not just legally wrote Mark D. Stern prophetically in his book Formulating Responses in an Egalitarian Age. The remaining question is whether champions of tolerance are prepared to tolerate proponents of a different ethical vision. And I think the answer will be, and now he's actually been proved right, the answer will be no. So where are we? How did we get here? The abandonment of coverture and same-sex marriage as a tipping point. In my, uh, in my last few moments, I want to talk about what can we do. How many think that's a good thing to start talking about? <laughs> what can be done? Well, first of all, I think we have to remember that this whole idea of egalité was directly from the French Revolution. In fact, that was the fighting word, egalité, or liberty. As I was reading the Great Controversy again on the way here, I was struck by chapter 15. I would encourage all of you to read chapter 15 of the book Great Controversy. Notice what it says, all who exalt their own opinions above divine revelation or who would change the plain meaning of Scripture to suit their own convenience, or for the sake of conforming to the world, are taking upon themselves a fearful responsibility. The written word, the law of God, will measure the character of every man and condemn all whom this unerring test shall declare wanting. And so, in discussing the French Revolution, 
there is a discussion of the law of God. Now, let me just make something clear. The Adventist church chose not to uh, support or not uh, be in favor or against this ruling. It says what the, what the state does with the... Uh, what the state does with how it applies the 14th Amendment is up to the state. But it chose to, to send its brief to the court saying, we're concerned about the religious liberty implications. Right? Um, okay, so the law of God. Let's keep reading some more on this, the Great Controversy, chapter 15. The great city is also compared spiritually to Sodom, the corruption of Sodom, in breaking the law of God was especially manifest in licentiousness. And this sin was also to be a preeminent characteristic of the nation that should fulfill the specifications of the scripture. History will be repeated. And then she quotes Matthew 24, 37 to 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so she's saying marriage would be defined to include a licentious, Sodom-like marriage at the end of time. Is that happening? By the way, as I studied the French Revolution again, I went back to see what laws they made under the banner of Egalité, and they actually were the first government to decriminalize homosexual activity at that time. And now, of course, our government has done the same, right? Um, okay. So what can be done? Number one, I already said, remember where we are. In other words, I find it comforting, at least somewhat, how many find it comforting that what we're seeing was already seen? Number two, I think this is so important. A parent should be persistent in instructing, never on any account slackening effort ever so slightly, in the training and education of children. Has God given explicit directions for parents to follow? Let us read what he has said. For truly we have no other authority. By reading Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 10, the last verse more particularly, it is found that the caution is given not only to remember all that has been heard and seen, but especially to teach the Ten Commandments to the children. Actually, that last verse says, the fathers are to teach the sons. When I read that, and thought about my upbringing, I immediately praised God for my father. On the way to school, when I was a little boy, he would have us say the Ten Commandments for memory. Every child, and we had three, said the Ten Commandments on the way to school. If we got there early, we repeated them in the car. And we had the first part, I brought you up out of the land of bondage, and so it was an act of response to God's grace. My dad would say that every day. 
And when I read these statements, I said, wow, what a dad I had and have. On the way home, this is practical. Folks, I hope you're remembering this for your kids and grandkids. On the way home, he would have us repeat Psalm 1. <laughs> Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His branch also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Can you tell he taught me well? <laughs> and he would say, look, blessed is the man that, you know, first of all he's walking, then he's standing, then he's sitting. Don't even walk with them. Don't stand around. Don't sit down. Get out of there if they're doing something against God's law. In Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 is presented the first great commandment with a promise, and that same is to be taught diligently to children. Notice, therefore, carefully the marginal readings, he says, wet or sharpened. The figure used is that of a very dull-edged tool, an axe, for instance. The injunction is to wet and sharpen the mind of the child diligently by constant teaching of the commandments of God. Most gender confusion happens during the teenage years because the frontal lobe is expanding and everything's up for grabs. The culture you're in, the surrounding you're in, has a massive influence on you which I think is fairly interesting. Look at the commandments now with me again to see how powerful these are. The second commandment talks about visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children. That's a heterosexual commandment, isn't it? You can't have children and a father without a what? Mother. The fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy, that thy days may be long. Another heterosexual commandment. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in the Pentateuch, it's very clear that that means between a husband and a wife. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbors. Wait a minute. That must mean there is a husband and a... Can you see how a simple focus on the Ten Commandments will protect you against gender confusion. Could it be that my fathers, having me memorize that, helped me out? But I saved the fourth commandment for the last. Fourth commandment, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant. <laughs> Again, assuming what? A heterosexual relationship. But that fourth commandment, the more I've looked at it, you know, we're told at the end of time that we will understand and enter into the Sabbath more fully. How many of you want to enter more fully into the commandment just for a moment? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Listen very carefully. As I reread the commandments, and I don't have to read them because I have them memorized. So as I reset them again and again and again, and by the way, 
Ellen White says that every single parent should know them from memory. And she says that most don't even know them. I noticed something I hadn't noticed before. And it was that while both parents and children, and in fact everybody in the world is alluded to in those commandments in some fashion, the specific responsibility seems to rest upon the dad because they're written in a masculine singular format. And some of them actually kind of hint that, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, and then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. This does not diminish at all the female because it says honor thy father and thy mother. Right? And in Leviticus it says honor thy mother and thy father. <laughs> it reverses it. But I thought for a minute, is there anything we can learn from the gender differentiation of the commandments? How many think there might be? Is there anything we can learn from that? And did the American College of Pediatrics tend to agree with what I just said? And then I looked more closely at that commandment in my mind. What is a dad to do? Because I'm reading it from my perspective of a dad. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Look, I'm supposed to work for six days of the week. Can't you ladies say amen? Get out there, honey. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. In other words, while both can work, your manservant, your maidservant, the guy is supposed to really work. In other words, he's to take responsibility for the temporal needs. He's to provide and protect. I tell you, my kids are getting older. I'm saying, how in the world am I going to afford this and that? I'm always saying, well, we have to cut here, do this, that, there. My wife joins me, of course, but that's my responsibility according to the commandments. How many of you want a man like that? Not so many. How many of you want a man like that? But then I noticed something else. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy was also supposed to be Something that's directed to both parents, but the man is supposed to take that as a responsibility. But I noticed something that was even more fascinating. Not just for his own family, but for those that he, he, that he employs. And then it says, it expands beyond that, and it says, the stranger, which is within your gates. In other words, it's not just related to the family, it's related outside the family. I don't know if you, I'm not going to go into all the implications of that, but can you see the implication? In other words, as the family goes, then what? The workplace will go, if you're in charge of it, hopefully, and then what? The worship will go. How many can see how powerful the Sabbath commandment is? It is actually, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, the one that gives the ultimate reason for gender differentiation. Because it says, for in six days God created. 
Can you see that? So creation order. But in the Deuteronomy version, it says what? Because you were a slave in Egypt, and I brought you out. Two things, then. The punchline of the commandment gives. What is it? You remember that you're a man and a woman. You have those rule distinctions glorifying God together as he writes his law in your hearts and lives. Because, number one, I created you. Punchline of the Exodus version of the Ten Commandments. Number two, I redeemed you. Hallelujah. How many want to enter more fully into the Sabbath commandment? And can you see that the Sabbath commandment, at the heart of the commandments, gives the ultimate reason, creation and redemption, for all the commandments? Make no mistake, this is not just some discussion we have about, well, what do you think about it? Five of the Ten Commandments are directly connected to the discussion. I've got some present truth for you today. The Sabbath commandment is already under attack. Legislation has already been passed that has attacked the Sabbath. Had you thought about it that way? Notice what Ellen White says. Don't leave this, moms and dads, to others. The human mind is frequently and naturally very dull. And a child's mind, if left to itself, is sure to be sluggish and stupid. And get confused, right? It is lamentable that parents, as a rule, leave to others, disinterested parties, the training and educating of their children, to the teachers of the day, and Sabbath schools who have supervision over them for a brief period of an hour or so at a time. How many of these same parents could remember the numerous sermons they've listened to upon the commandments of God or even repeat the commandments verbatim? Parents, what better or more noble employment can you possibly be engaged in than fitting your child to honor God and be an honor to you? Never be discouraged then, but continue daily, hourly to sharpen that mind, and eventually you will find the lessons instilled coming to the child's lips. Did you hear those coming from my lips today, from my dad? Repetitions of precious words, truths, and promises learned from you. Number one, then, remember the times we're living in. Number two, remember the commandments, especially the Sabbath commandment. Number three, remember the value of Adventist education. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. I, I don't know if I should say this, but make sure the education you're receiving is Adventist education. Don't just leave it. Make sure. Go, sit in a few classes. Show up, unannounced. Always be leery when people say, we don't allow people to tape our classes. Here's what it says, the book Education Concerning the End Time. Spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods, that each mind will judge itself, that true knowledge places men above the law, that all sins committed are innocent, and for whatever is right, 
is is right and God does not condemn. The basest of human beings it represents is in heaven and highly exalted there. Thus it declares to all men it matters not what you do. Live as you please. Heaven is your home. Multitudes are thus led to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, that man is accountable only to himself. With such teachings given at the very onset of life, in other words, to young people, when impulse is strongest and the demand for self-restraint and purity is most urgent, where are the safeguards of virtue? And what is to prevent the world from becoming a second Sodom? And then she says these words. Remember our first point? The French Revolution, she then links them. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest and riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of what does it say next? The same teachings that led to the French Revolution are all tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Such are the influences to be met by the youth of today. To stand against such upheavals, they are now to lay the foundations of character. How many of you are thankful for youth for Jesus and for godly people to do that? How many of you are thankful for your spouse How many are thankful for the homes? How many of you didn't have a home are thankful for the homes that took you in? How many of you, that if your kids are out of the home, want to take someone else in? How many want to support Christian education? If you don't have kids, support it to send some others. Number four, deal patiently with errors that others may have in this regard. And they will be increasing because of the climate. Serving the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. I like how the King James says it. It says, those who oppose themselves. If God will grant them repentance so they may know the truth, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You know, these pathway events, one of the first ones was in a city that was known for real problems in, in this area, one of the first ones I went to. And as we went there, we as a team talked and we said, you know what, we are not going there to talk about this issue. That's not what we're doing. We're going to minister to the needs of people, many of whom have been perhaps impacted by this issue. We're going to show the love of Christ. The first day, people came through, and I could, you know, one man said to me, he goes, I don't know why you're here. Someone told me you're somewhat responsible for this. I said, I'm not, I'm not responsible. Look, at there's many, many people here. How could it be me? I'm responsible for me being here, for sure, and a couple other people. But, and he goes, this is a place of darkness. People are going to get hurt. They're going to get killed. I've seen people really hurt on this very street. On the other side of where we were offering the clinic was a large pornographic studio. Well, anyway, we were offering care. 
The second day we decided that at a certain time we would just all sing Amazing Grace. There were choirs and whatnot singing around the entire auditorium, but that time we said we're going to all sing together Amazing Grace. So we started singing Amazing Grace. The person I was serving at that time looked at me and said, who are you people? What do you mean by that? She goes, I feel so convicted, but it's in a good way. She says, I know what I'm doing in life is wrong, but I want to do what's right when I'm around you people. I don't have to tell you what she was involved in. You can probably figure it out from our talk today. Wow. How many of you want to be a servant of the Lord, not quarrel, but apt to teach, in humility, correcting those who oppose themselves? Because it's God who grants repentance. Number five, get your policies in your business, church, and school in order. And by the way, get your finances in order too. There are many of our schools and institutions that take all kinds of money from the government and they're dependent on it, and that is going to be a big decision coming up if it has not already come up. When you put those policies together, and by the way, there's a guy named John Daggett who does this all day. He's legal counsel. If you're someone here in a business or a church entity and you want these statements, they're in my longer presentation, but I can also hopefully get them to you. Cite official church statements if you're, if you're in a church entity. There is strength in unity. Number two, carefully choose your staff. Number three, consistently apply policies that are there. It is still legal to let people go if they are against the rules in your school. And move forward, not playfully, but prayerfully. <laughs> Bad typo there. <laughs> move forward <laughs> prayerfully. Number six. <laughs> I already alluded to this one. Invest your time in risk management. You know what I think one of the best forms of risk management is? Evangelism that is connected to medical missionary work. I think, I might be the only one here, but I actually think that what ASI has been involved in in terms of pathway to health has provided more coverage for the church than any insurance policy you could buy. The free services offered in San Francisco, in San Antonio, and in Spokane are a great blessing to many people, but they also are protection. I'm reminded of the early Baptist Dr. Peter Chamberlain, who was a Sabbatarian, and he was an excellent physician. And there came a time when there were laws against the Sabbath. And everybody was being put in jail. 
Well, they didn't put him in jail because he had delivered all the babies of the royal family. And they said, that guy we need, how could we put him in jail? And then he said, how could you put me in jail, not put me in jail, and keep all those Sabbath keepers in jail? Let them out. And it changed the tide at that time. How many of you want to understand the Sabbath more fully and enter into it? This is what Chamberlain said to Parliament. Provide for the poor, and they will provide for you. <laughs> and finally, in closing, in my last couple minutes, never give up confidence in the power of the gospel. You know, none of us are any different in this respect. We are all woefully lost. Everyone we serve is in great need of a Savior. If our definition of gospel makes us think that we are better than someone else, it's not the right gospel. I think one of our biggest problems in the Christian church is that we think we've got it all figured out. We don't have it figured out. We need the Lord. How many of you need the Lord? How many believe your spouse needs the Lord? Hope you're both raising your hand. I don't want to start a controversy. The other day I was talking to someone in the counseling chamber, not concerning depression recovery. and They had worked through so many things. They had bitterness and anger against their family. And I showed them a text in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 14, where it says, he sees all the sins his father has committed. He considers them, but he doesn't do likewise. And the person said to me, how in the world is that possible? How can I not do likewise? And then I showed him in Jeremiah 31 where the same phraseology is used that fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Same phrase. And then guess what it does? It gives the new covenant promise. And what's that new covenant promise? I will write my law on your heart and on your mind. You'll be my people, and I'll be your God. No one will have to teach his neighbor, because all will know me. And your sins and your iniquities, I'll remember no more. Do you see the I will statements in there? Who's doing it? Are you doing it? God's doing it. I will live in you. I will walk in you. I will dwell in you, it says in 1 Corinthians 6. How many of you think we need the gospel? And the gospel is needed, if it's needed as much by us as anyone we're talking to, we have no position of pride, bullying, saying things that are negative. We have no grounding for that. 
We must move with humility, recognizing that anything we may have done well or good is not because of us, but because of Him. You're not a good husband unless God's in your life. You're not a good wife unless God's in your life. I'm not a good, I'm, you understand what I say. And an ally, what a wonderful text. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, those words are actually set up just like the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah that's repeated in Hebrews 8 and 10. It's the biggest promise that God can do something in your life, no matter who you are. And that, although it might seem old in this connection, is also present truth. So look, as society begins to contract and concentrate against the law of God and his people. It demands that we have individual faithfulness to God. How many of you want to recommit to God in your life today? It demands that we as families be so closely knit that God's word can come into our hearts and in our minds and to our homes. And it demands that our churches also be like big families as well. Heaven help us in these trying and yet exciting times. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today we've talked about some very searching things. And as we've talked, we have absolutely no room to point the finger at anyone but we just ask that you would take your finger and point it toward us and write your law in our hearts and minds. Fill us with your spirit, not because we're worthy, but because you promised. And make us a life-giving stream for you. In Christ's name, amen and amen.
This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.